I'm Brian. I'm Caroline. And this is It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Welcome back, fans, friends, haters, and losers. (laughs) So today we're talking about episode five. Yes. And this episode was very plot heavy. Yes. So this uh, episode of our podcast is going to be a little bit more like a recap where we just talk about where the storylines are, where they seem to be going. Right. Uh, I've done my best to kind of uh, condense it all into four major plot points Mm -hmm. or themes. So we'll do our best. Now, right off the bat, I want to point out that this episode was directed by Tim Hunter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Great uh, journeyman director for TV. Yeah, he did a lot of episodes of Mad Men. He did a bunch of episodes of Breaking Bad, Homicide Life on the Street. He's just one of those guys. He's done everything. Right. And the funny thing is, when I think back on those shows that we've watched, like Mad Men, Mm -hmm. I don't know which ones he directed. We could obviously look it up. But I think that um, shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad, kind of like Twin Peaks, they have a house style. Yes. And I think Tim Hunter is someone who gets these jobs because he's very good at slotting into the house style mm-hmm. while also putting his own touch and his own uh, distinguishing characteristics. Yes, I agree. Episode. And in, in this episode in particular, we have a very heavy noir uh, stylistic mm-hmm. element. Yeah, there, there are some interesting things he does, particularly towards the end of the episode. Right. And um, I read some interviews by Tim Hunter. He said he was influenced by noir, but also by uh, some of the classic melodramas by Douglas Sirk and uh, Vincent Minnelli. So it's kind of interesting. I think we get some, um, you know, we'll go into this as we talk about the specific details, but we get lots of shadows, Dutch angles, rack focus, this is uh, a little more technically showy filmmaking than we usually get in Twin Peaks, even when Lynch is directing. Yes. Um, and I say showy just because when you notice those things, you see them. But really, um, uh, and they do, you can't enjoy the episode without noticing them. And I don't think that they're, I don't think they draw attention to themselves. I think everything suits the story. And really the first couple of times you might not notice these things. Yes. And they build a mood that I think you'll notice, even if you don't notice the specific ways that mood is being built. I think this episode is very tense and um, yes, it feels like a melodrama. Uh, A lot is, um, focused on uh, family conflicts, family conflicts intersecting with the criminal world, mm-hmm. uh, which is, yeah, very noirish and very 50s in a way. Right. So first off, I want to talk about Audrey and her ongoing investigation okay. into Laura's death. Um, we've gotten bits and pieces of it in previous episodes, uh, Audrey talked to Donna at the diner, and we could see that she had some thoughts, some suspicions, but she was being a little indirect, and maybe she herself wasn't sure exactly what she thought at that point. Um, and then we saw her uh, peeping, uh, you know, a, a nice psycho shot. I, mm-hmm. I don't remember if we discussed it. No, we didn't. But she's spying on uh, her brother with Dr. Jacoby. Right. And there she learned that Laura was Jacoby's patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now uh, we're really, really getting in the storyline because we have Audrey uh, in the bathroom at the high school with Donna. Mm-hmm. And she's being very forthright with Donna. Yes, this is the first moment where we learn that Audrey really has a plan. She's mm-hmm. not just nosing around or being curious. She's trying to help solve the investigation, partly, I think, just because of her crush on Cooper. Yeah, I think she's got a lot of different motivations here. They're all mixed together. Um, What she says specifically here is that she thinks if she can solve the mystery, that that Cooper will be impressed. That he'll fall in love with her and realize that she's the woman of his dreams. 
you know. But previously, she did tell Donna that she has a genuine fondness for Laura, even though they weren't exactly close. Yeah, there's a shot later in the episode where she sees a picture of the two of them together, I guess on her father's desk. On her father's desk. Yes, which is interesting. I always wondered where that picture was taken, where it came from, because all the other indications are that, again, Laura and Audrey weren't close friends, but apparently they hung out once and had a picture taken together that Ben Horn has saved. Right. Well, you know, their fathers work together and I think it's not, uh, you know, it's not that strange. No. Yeah. That maybe Ben Horn would have arranged some big trip um, for all of them to go on. Mm -hmm. They would have hung out in those circumstances, but not necessarily outside of of those get-togethers. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, So one thing that I noticed here this time around is Audrey has this line, one of these kind of corny lines uh, that we get in Twin Peaks sometimes where she says, um, she says she's been doing research and in real life there is no algebra. Hmm. And I thought this was a jokey line about their schoolwork right. that they are never doing. Um, but then I thought maybe she's talking about this investigation. Hmm. Because in algebra, you know, there's an unknown quantity, but you can always reveal that quantity for what it is by yes. applying a formula. Yes. And you always inevitably get the one correct solution. Mm-hmm. And maybe what Audrey is realizing here is that in life, things are more complicated. Um, yeah. 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 I think, I think that's true. In a previous episode, I think you had said that Audrey is like the Jeffrey Beaumont figure. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey Beaumont from Blue Velvet in that so much of her story is her learning about the dark underside of the world that she's in and, learning how corrupt it is. Yeah. And yeah, maybe that line is an indication in that direction. Right. And, and building on that connection with Jeffrey Beaumont, um, the most interesting thing about this scene, I think is when Audrey is telling Donna about one-eyed jacks. Yes. Um, and she, and they, they speculate that Laura was working there. And Audrey says that when she thinks about that, thinks about Laura in that place, she has this shivery feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because she's not she's not sad thinking about how degraded Laura was. No. She says it's like a hot cold, like when you hold an ice cube on your bare skin for a long time. Yeah, it's like she's a little titillated. Yeah, to me, this is the most Lynchian scene in the episode because you have this unity of opposites. It's hot and cold, it's repulsion and attraction, it's pain and pleasure. But I do think to a certain extent, this is Audrey's idea of, uh, this is Audrey's idea of Laura. And Mm -hmm. this idea that, Laura had this experience in life that Audrey lacks that involved pain in some way, but also pleasure and was complex mm-hmm. and alluring. And that in some way, Laura was an adult and Audrey yes. was not. Yes, they're really kind of mirror images of each other in so many ways in that Laura was somebody who was the homecoming queen and maybe had a reputation as uh, a good girl. She did a lot of charity work. Um, She did a lot of volunteering to help people in her free time, but she had this dark other side. Whereas Audrey presents herself as kind of a vamp and who somebody who's very worldly and, you know, smokes in the girl's bathroom, but she is quite innocent. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's, that's really what Audrey's storyline throughout the first two seasons or the first season and a half, that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. She's drawn to that flame uh, that Laura represents to her. Um, But it's, you know, it is a childish, idea that that's a good, that that's something that what Laura had was desirable because 
Audrey sees Laura and her, that she sees that Laura kind of disregarded conventional morality. Yes. And I think for Audrey, that's a kind of freedom and power. Mm -hmm. um, but Audrey's going to realize how wrong this is. And even as like the audience, when you watch it for the first time, you can't understand how wrong Audrey is here. Mm -hmm. And you'll, if you don't understand by the end of the first two seasons, you definitely understand when you watch Firewalk with me. Yes. That Laura probably would have given anything to have a fairly conventional teenage life like Audrey has. Yes, I agree. Or so, like Donna has. Yeah, and it's kind of poignant that both Audrey and, and Donna were jealous of Laura. And this is, Donna's going to have a storyline where it's a, a more ham-fisted or heavy-handed um, because Donna is putting on the glasses. Right. We'll get to that in a later episode. It's almost like she's possessed by Laura, but it's just another uh, manifestation of her jealousy. To, to use a cliche, men wanted to be with Laura, women wanted to be Laura. I hate that cliche, but yes. Well, the thing is, the one reason it's so awful is because when people use that cliche, they're using it like you want to be in that position. But, yeah, but well, it's really yeah. what made Laura's life so awful. And it prevented her from having true intimacy with friends like Donna because of their jealousy of her. She could never really relax exactly. around anyone. Yeah. You know, um, earlier in the episode, Jacoby, Jacoby says that Laura, Laura wasn't a girl. She was a woman. Right. And I think in a way, Audrey thinks that too. Mm -hmm. um, but she really was not a woman. She was a girl. Uh, she did have these experiences that a child shouldn't have and experiences that an adult shouldn't have. Yeah. And I that, that puts her in this kind of like almost transcendental realm uh, where she's so beyond normal experience. And I think she was able to see through a lot of things because of that, but that's not something you want to, to be. No, I noticed this time. And I wonder whether it was intentional on the writer's part, but the word that Audrey uses to describe Lara, which is wild, is the same one that Leo Johnson used to describe her kind of dismissively. Right. And um, I don't know. It's, I don't think that Audrey is doing that, but it's a similar kind of scene in that she's basically telling someone who was very close to Lara, you didn't really know her which is what Leo was doing to Bobby when he right. described Laura as wild. You might have thought she was one thing, but we actually know she was something else. Right. And then, but then that's, you know, what Audrey knows is also not accurate. Exactly. Leo thinks he knows her. He doesn't. Exactly. No one did. Exactly. Um, and a little later in this episode, to continue Audrey's story, we get her with her dad um, she's manipulating him, um, but it's kind of uh, it's kind of complicated because I think Ben does want to have a better relationship with Audrey, and he does realize what what she says is true that she is his best chance to have some kind of heir to take on the family business. Yes, but that business is also a business of crime because he gets a call in the middle of their conversation mm -hmm. that we. It turns out that it's from Leo. I thought it was from Hank. Well, we weren't sure at first, but he's, he says that they're going to meet. Oh, right. He, he with, does meet with, with Leo and they talk about Hank. Yeah. Right. Um, I think we do see uh, Ben with Hank later on. Yes. Because both Hank and Leo are involved. Mm -hmm. They're all involved together, yes. which is a big kind of a big theme of the first season. Like everything is connected. Yeah. Things you thought weren't connected or connected. And Hank calls Josie at the end. And exactly. that's how we know that Hank is in on all of the mill stuff and intimidating Josie. Yeah. But he is, Hank is still, even though he's going to get parole, he's still in prison. Yes. At the end of this episode. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's a nice little scene uh, with Audrey and Van Horn. I think, both the actors are very good mm -hmm. and they play off of each other very well. And uh, we get a lot of shots with um, 
Ben in the foreground, Audrey in the background. At first, they're like rack focus, um, going back and forth, uh, as I recall. And so, yeah, you kind of get this doubleness mm -hmm. um, and a sense of their their relationship. They're close but far apart. Well, they're very like each other, I exactly. think. Exactly. Yeah. And they keep trying to become closer, but neither of them is being honest about why they want that or what right. that would mean. They're each keeping a lot from each other. Uh, obviously, he's keeping the total knowledge of what being involved with the family business would actually mean. She's keeping from him why right. she wants to get involved, which is to find out what happened to Laura, exactly. not just to be his heir, although I think she wants that too. Right. So, yeah. But ironically, all of that stuff is why they're so similar. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so I think, yeah, this the the scene is capped off by this shot I wanted to point out, a split diopter. Yes. Um, and you know, this might be a little obscure, uh, but once you once you uh, once someone points out these split diopter shots, you start to see them everywhere. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's a special lens uh, that allows you to have. Um, perfect focus on something that's extremely close up and also something way in the background. Yes. And you, um, you, you can usually tell them because there's actually, there's a blurry line right in the middle mm -hmm. of the screen, mm -hmm. but it allows you in that very last scene without switching focus, they're both in focus Yes. and they both have this hesitation, this, this, you know, they're kind of these mixed motivations. Uh, and it's a great, I don't know, it kind of uh, underlines all these themes we've been talking about. Yes, and it's a type of technique that in an odd way can add a surreal note to a scene because, of course, it's a way of seeing that isn't possible with the eye where you just have to focus on one thing. Right. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, and I don't think we're going to see anything like this in Twin Peaks again. Maybe, maybe. Although we get uh, Tim Hunter comes on as director a couple more times. So yes. we'll be on the lookout. Yes. So moving on, the other thing I want to touch on, which is actually related, is the, the burgeoning storyline with Maddie, James, and Donna. Yes. And we actually don't get too much of it here, but uh, we do have James meeting Maddie for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's in love. Yeah, that's uh, pretty clear. He's sort of smitten right from the start. Obviously, she looks exactly like Lara. He's a little, I think, overwhelmed with seeing her. Right. He's he's in love with Maddie as Laura. Yes. And Maddie has such an innocent quality. And not innocent in like... Um, a childlike way or an idealized way. She's just kind of clueless mm -hmm. because at this point, we as the audience now know so much more about Twin Peaks than she does. Yes. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I, in these scenes, it, I just have uh, so much fear for her in mm -hmm. a sense of her vulnerability because she really has no idea what she's getting into. Yes, and I think, you know, we first see her in an early scene in the episode where Hawk is uh, finally getting that sketch of Bob from uh, Sarah Palmer, um, mm -hmm. you know, doing a sketch based on her vision. And Maddie is kind of, you know, coming back and forth in the background of that scene, you know, bringing people coffee and stuff. And then, of course, Leland wanders in and he's mean and weird. And it's clear that his marriage to Sarah is completely falling apart, but nobody's really talking about it. And so apart from the scene with James, we really only see Maddie with the Palmers mm -hmm. and all of the scenes in the Palmer house are just so full of tension and menace at this point that you can't really help but be terrified for her because yes, she is such a nice seeming person and the Palmers themselves are just so damaged and yes. awful to one another. It's just awful to see her caught in the middle of it really. 
Yeah, she is really walking into a minefield here. And, you know, I think um, overshadowing this episode and a lot of the first season is this question of what does it mean to be Laura Palmer? Yes. And Maddie, by virtue simply of her outward appearance. Yes. Is going to have a crash course in this. Right. She's watching right into the minefield of being Laura. Yes, she has to be Laura in the Palmer house. She has to be Laura to James. She's going to become Donna's new best friend so she can be Laura to Donna. She's going to uh, pretend to be Laura at certain points in order right. to trick people. And none of it is going to work out for her. Well, to be Laura is to be a dead body. Yes. And, and there's a reason for that. You know, later in this episode, Donna says to James, nobody loved her but us. Mm. And we hear this over and over again. Characters saying that they loved Laura. Yes. Even, I, I think even the priest at the funeral said that he loved her. Yeah. Um, you know, presumably meaning that in more of a like chaste and spiritual way. Right. But everyone seemed to think that they loved her and that their relationship with her made them special. Yeah, it's not just that everyone says they loved Laura. So many people seem to think that they were either alone in loving Laura or that they were the ones who really understood her. I think even Audrey, who admits that they weren't close, says at one point, I understood her better than most people. Yeah. Um, Jacoby seems to imply that he understood her in a way that other people didn't because yeah. they were boys and she was a woman. And she had secrets, you know, implying that he was privy to those secrets. But yeah, none of them really knew her. And I think a lot of them loved her. But well, ultimately, that didn't mean anything for Laura. Well, it, it, what it meant for Laura was not good. No. They, yeah, they projected their desires. And, you know, Laura winds up wrapped in plastic. Yes. She's wrapped in plastic like a commodity. Mm because she has to be the vehicle or the canvas. She's the girl in the picture frame. Exactly. So all these people, they were consuming their own desires. Mm. They were consuming this, their own need to have a certain belief or image of who they were. And in doing so, they were consuming the real Laura and they didn't even know it. Yes. They consumed her future her pain, uh, they exploited her body, which was alive until it wasn't. And it became, you know, they objectified her and literally she became an object, a corpse. Yeah, I'm trying to think and I, you know, don't want to spoil anybody, but was there a single person who just treated her with kindness without expecting anything in return at all? Maybe Ronette, I don't know. I feel like James was trying. Yes. But it was either, maybe it was too late or mm. maybe it was still too complicated because uh, because they were in a relationship yeah. and James was seeing her in an idealized way mm -hmm. and she was seeing James in an idealized way. You know, it is a two-way street. I don't want to just say like, I don't want to do the same thing and make Laura passive. She was also building walls. Yes. Like, like Jacoby says, it yes. is true. Um, well, that makes Maddie's situation even sadder then, because if we can say that James didn't use or commodify Lara in the way that everybody else did, he does do that to Maddie. Yes. Because he wants to make her Lara, not herself. Right, and, and I think that may tell us something about what his love for Laura meant. And also just the fact that, you know, Laura or Donna says that line mm -hmm. to James, how no one loved her like like we did. We were yeah. the only ones who loved her. And then they make out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all about their relationship. It's like, mm -hmm. this is not long after. No, it's Laura's a couple death. days. Um, you know, how, how deep was that love? Yeah. Really? Um, so yeah, Laura, and I don't want to say, again, I don't want to fall into saying the town killed her, but, you know, even what Bob was doing, feeding off of her pain, 
as a kind of metaphor for what the town did. Yes. And Leland himself, although it's hard to distinguish between him and Bob, I do feel like what we see in Fire Walk With Me is that apart from Bob, Leland has this unhealthy fixation on his daughter. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and this need to control her, mm-hmm. and to control her sexuality. Yes. And that's another way that he's projecting onto her. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes Laura into this, uh, you know, an object of mass consumption for the whole town. Right. Um, and before we move on, I did want to point out that, you know, we're kind of contrasting Laura and Maddie. Yeah. Which becomes experience and innocence in a way. Mm-hmm. But then because of, you know, because uh, in a way, Laura, Laura's experience was all the result of these projections. Yes. And the fact that everyone easily transfers their feelings from Laura onto Maddie, mm-hmm. uh, starting with James mm-hmm. and also Leland. Yes. Um, you know, it kind of shows us how much of these ideas about Laura were not her, mm-hmm. and that fundamentally Laura was Maddie. So there, right. there, their resemblance is both deceptive because everyone wants her to be Laura, but mm-hmm. it, it's actually also genuine because even Laura wasn't Laura. She wasn't the Laura that Bobby saw or I Right. Saw. I think it would be a mistake to think that um, it's sad that people are treating Maddie like Laura because Maddie doesn't deserve it. Yeah, exactly. Because she's a good girl, unlike Laura. I think we're supposed to notice what people are doing so that we can then say neither one of them deserved it. Yeah. Exactly. That's, I think that's exactly the point here. Yeah. Um, but uh, before we move on, I did want to flag this little detail we both noticed for the first time, which is Donna reveals that Sarah has always had dreams and visions. And so did Laura. So yeah, I had completely forgotten that. And, and yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I think it, it really ties in with the return and the and idea with fire that, walk with me. Yeah. Some idea that it. Laura is was special from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but sorry, I kind of talked over you a little bit, but uh, only that in fire walk with me, we see Laura have oh, yeah, visions right. and, um, you know, experience some sort of supernatural yeah. or extra dimensional things. But um, this is something that I think is explored more in the return right. kind of obliquely in that, yes, Laura was special from the beginning, but that she and her mother have a kind of connection in that way yeah. that the original series doesn't really talk about a lot. Right. Yes. And also the house itself seems yes. to have a connection. It seems like it has a, kind of a gateway mm-hmm. into these other worlds. Yes. So yeah, pretty interesting. All right, uh, I'd like to shift now to talking about Cooper and the boys. The gang. The gang, yeah. Um, I think throughout the first two seasons, a lot of Cooper's story is that he's being integrated more and more into the sheriff's department. Yes. And the bookhouse boys. Yes. And you know, I don't think he's changing them that much, but they might be changing him. Right, right. And I don't think that it's an unambiguously positive thing. Yeah. One thing I'm noticing this time around as we rewatch it, um, really more, more than ever, and much more than the first couple of times where I kind of took Cooper to be almost practically Lynch's stand-in and mm-hmm. the unambiguous hero, uh, increasingly, I'm questioning whether whether he is not. I think he's the hero, but I'm I'm not seeing him as uncomplicated no. as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure we're supposed to see him that way. Um, I'm not even sure that I'm now reading that much into it by seeing that um, there is something a little uh, troubling by how quickly. Cooper falls in with his pre-existing community. Yes. Um, and I do think it it 
is causing him to overlook things. Well, he's accepting the stories that the community tells about itself without right. really questioning them. And I think that is causing him to overlook certain things. He's accepting the narratives that the sheriff department gives him in terms of who the bad guys are in the town and who the good guys are in the town. And this is, right. this is something that I keep coming back to, but no one is looking at Leland. He's right there. He's right there being really weird. At the very beginning of this episode. Yes. And they're there, you know, in the house, mm -hmm. at least Hawk is, uh, and Truman is there. And this is this is uh, the fulfillment of Cooper's prophetic dream. Yes. But they're sketching Bob, and Leland is right there. Yeah. Um, I mean, has anybody asked <laughs> Leland, where were you that night? I don't think so. No. Well, Leland is a pillar of the community. Exactly. If he's acting weird, it's because he's grieving. Don't think about it too hard. Yeah. And, you know, I think Truman is probably... Well, as we'll see, Truman is willing to even see that Ben Horn, for all his his privilege and esteem in the community, that mm -hmm. we all know that he's involved in shady things. Right. So if it turns out to be him, that's actually not that surprising. Right. But it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. It was someone who, for some reason, no one ever thought to suspect, even though he was literally working for the evil mastermind in town. Yes. Uh, so it's yeah, pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting how they don't go there. No, they just never put it together. You think that Leland didn't know about One-Eyed Jacks? Come on. Yeah, right. And so I I do wonder whether some of this lapse here on uh, Cooper's part has to do with, like you said, him accepting the narrative that's given to him by Truman. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. It, we, you know, in the last episode, we saw that the Bookhouse Boys have this conservative view of Twin Peaks as a place that we have to keep perfect and separate. Yes. To maintain the boundaries. Uh, yes. And uh, protect it from foreign pathogens. Yes. And this is something that radical feminists talk about a lot in regards to the family. But, um, you can see it also with uh, people who theorize around like national borders, but right. people in power don't want closed borders. They want borders that are closed, but porous and they control where the pores are. Right. They don't, they don't want it open and they don't want it completely shut, but they want that to the ability to police them. Right, yeah. So somebody like Leland, being a patriarch doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to protect the women under his control, but it means he gets to decide what happens to them. Yeah. And the bookhouse boys and the sheriff's department controlling the boundaries of Twin Peaks doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that bad stuff isn't going to get into Twin Peaks. It just means that nothing gets in without them knowing Right. Or well, yeah. deciding. Yeah. For example, Cooper is an outsider. Yes. But they allow him in yeah. because he flatters their view of themselves. Mm -hmm. Albert is a problem. Yes. Who needs to be dealt with with violence. Yes. And the Bookhouse boys can kidnap a Renault brother and tie him up and bring him to the Bookhouse for interrogation extra legally. And, you know, that may be a bad thing to do, but they're the ones doing it. So it's okay. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and you know, they, he is, you know, they did the guy that they tied up is bad. Yes. Um, they're not hurting anyone innocent in that, in that instant, but the crucial thing is that they get to decide. Exactly. Um, so here we're kind of building on that with this great scene at the firing range um, that I think is, it's all about masculinity and sure. it's, it's quite complicated and not um, right. There's a kind of wholesomeness to it, but mm -hmm. I don't want to completely, you know, deconstruct that into nothing. I, I think it's there that like these men have this real relationship. Yeah, but it's it's very phallic, isn't it? Like 
um, because they keep talking about their relationships with the women too. And the scene starts with Cooper noticing that Andy and Lucy aren't doing too well. And of course, Andy is the one who can't perform on the range or who prematurely performs in the field. Well, or he might be shooting with blanks, I think is an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the issue with Lucy. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's, this is, um, you know, it's, it's homosocial and full of these erotic projections. It's definitely this version of male sexuality where the sexuality is only complete when experienced through or with another man. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, we even have, it's over the top, really. We have Hawk, you know, glancing down towards Cooper's pelvis and saying, nice piece. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They really put that in there. Yeah. You know, we're not, uh, I, I don't want people to think that we're like reading a bunch of stuff into this based on our, you know, uh, woke political views or something no no of course not but i (laughs) i mean come on no i think we're supposed to draw this connection and it's we're supposed to notice that of the four men three of them are romantically or sexually successful and they're the ones who are also the best shots yes um they don't really bring up Harry's love life in the scene, but we know that he's sleeping with the most beautiful and the richest woman in town. So he's doing okay. Well, yes, they are successful, but I think it's crucial that they're all alienated Mm -hmm. uh, romantically or alienated from women in in one way or another. Uh, And we have Cooper saying that, uh, you know, he tells, um, well, he says that, uh, to say women are just drawn from different blueprints. Yes. Um, so yeah, he tells Andy basically, don't try to understand. You can't. Mm-hmm. Men and women are different. Yeah. And everyone agrees. Mars here. and Venus. Yeah, all of the guys kind of agree in this gung ho way. Right. Um, you know, so they're kind of um they're bonding over this shared alienation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all they all have problems in different ways and they're pretending that their problems are the same problem, which is women. But obviously all their relationships are very different. Even Hawk. Do you well, think? that's a little, so, well, let, let's, let's go one at a time. Okay. So obviously Andy is having trouble with Lucy. Mm-hmm. And with his piece. Yes. And Andy is not sure exactly what's going on with Lucy it turns out it's a very, uh, you know, trivial sitcom-y kind of problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, it actually gets worked out pretty easily, albeit at great length. <laughs> um, and once it's worked out, um, Andy and Lucy have this great relationship, one of the few working relationships and lasting relationships in Twin Peaks. Yes. And we'll see in the return that... Uh, despite apparently being drawn from different blueprints, um, they they do understand each other. I think so. Or if there are things they don't understand about each other, they know how to navigate those things. Right. And yeah, we'll get that in the return, but I think there's a scene in the return that feels very silly and trivial, but once you understand what it reveals about their relationship, I think it's very important. Yeah. Yeah, so listeners, uh, you know, remind us that we talked about this. <laughs> yeah, like um, 20 episodes from now. <laughs> so that we can 30, tell you we'll back what we're it. talking about. Exactly. I'm um, going to remember. Right. So that's Andy's problem. Uh, Harry, you know, he's sleeping with the, the most beautiful woman in town. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's a secret relationship. He can't yes. be out in the open about it. Right. And perhaps even now, as guileless as as he is, Harry does sense that there are things about about Josie that he doesn't know about, mm-hmm. and deep depths that he can't touch. Yes. Um, and then we've got uh, Cooper. This is interesting. He's thinking about his relationship with a woman named Caroline. I'm yep. not sure he's, that she's been named at this point. No, but she will be. And it's me. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm actually a character in Twin Peaks, and this is, like, really meta-textual. Wow, that's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, anyway, we're gonna yeah the the Twin Peaks finally explained guy is gonna have to make some updates. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so right, Cooper is someone who can handle his peace and mm-hmm. is. Uh, uh, you know, Audrey uh, finds him attractive. Women find him attractive. He's competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet um, he is wounded by this this um, this regret about a life he could have had. Yes. And a woman that he couldn't protect. Yeah, he has a lot of guilt, I yes. think. And that's interesting because really Cooper doesn't have any trouble understanding women. But he pretends that that's what his problem is. Yeah. And that allows all, all of these men kind of pretend like they have the same problem. Mm-hmm. So they perform this idea of masculinity. Yeah, I think that's really the important bit. How much of their bonding is just performing. Yeah. And then as for Hawk, it's true. He doesn't have, he doesn't seem to have any present problems, but he has these kind of bittersweet mm-hmm. memories of. A woman from his past, maybe, maybe the one who got away, maybe not. Maybe. Um, he has this wonderful poem, um, and here is a, a smart bit of writing where, um, you know, the show is kind of dabbling in in uh, stereotypes. Yeah, when it, when it but comes to Hawk. they do keep pulling this bit with Hawk that I I do appreciate that they set him up to say something sort of profound or spooky or um i don't know somehow portentous and the characters think it's going to be a piece of ancient native american lore or right. wisdom or something and it's just something he made up yeah it's just a sappy poem he yeah went to his girlfriend at brandeis, at brandeis <laughs> you know and again this is complicating the idea of twin peaks is separate this idea that we don't want city slickers mm-hmm. like albert uh urinating upstream or yeah. moving themselves upstream, whatever Cooper says, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this, apparently this woman that Hawk was into, mm-hmm. you know, she was a PhD candidate. Yeah. Brandeis, mm-hmm. possibly a city slicker, maybe, yeah. maybe someone not unlike Albert. A college all the way on the other end of the country. Exactly. Yeah. And Hawk has, I also like that Hawk has his whole backstory that, mm-hmm. That we don't know about and we never know about, and I'm glad. Yes, yes. Because we can just imagine all the adventures of Hawk. Right. Um, but yeah, so it, it's this is a scene that's wholesome and troubling all at the same time. Um, because each each of these men has this pain, this man pain, <laughs> without relief. Yeah. So they perform the reduction of this complex pain into... An idea of maleness that's simple, rigid, unified, mm-hmm. as opposed to female ambiguity that they can't understand. Yes. We even have this great moment where there's a kind of romantic theme in, in the background, not the full-on Twin Peaks theme sure. or Laura's theme, mm-hmm. but a swoony theme, and it's interrupted abruptly by their gunfire, and the camera's fixed on their rigid faces and mm-hmm. their rigid postures, Apart from Andy's, who is kind of <laughs> floppy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, right. And so we see that they're they're kind of trying to put to bed their wounds in this idea that they have to be prepared to do to uh, commit the violence that must be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This very conservative idea of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um. And then we actually judge how efficient they are at killing people. Yeah. And Cooper in particular, I love this. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's so cold and brutal. Yes. It's what is it? Two shots in each eye and one through each nostril. Yeah. <laughs> and but that's the grouping that's most likely to kill an assailant instantly mm-hmm. and humanely. Yes. And it's um. Doesn't Cooper, before the scene, he says something about how they need to be ready exactly for the possibility of getting into some kind of like firefight or encountering dangerous people and they need to be ready to kill them, which is not something that the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department deals with on the regular. Um, And that's sort of not cold exactly, but it's... um, 
something that kind of casts a pall over the goofiness of the scene, I think, that it really is all for a reason. And the reason is you may need to take a life. So you need to be ready. Well, yes. And the idea is that that's the necessary work, the dirty work that Mm -hmm. no one else will do. So you have to do it. Yes. This is all the foundation of the conservative masculine self-image. Yep. Um, Which is not to say that it's, there isn't truth in it Mm -hmm. that sometimes there does need to be protection or violence done to protect someone. But what, you know, what you have to question is the idea of, um, constructing a whole idea of masculinity yes around it and also importantly because we don't what we know as we watch the show is that they don't they don't um they they don't find out who killed laura by using guns no and they don't stop laura's killer by using guns no and i think that you know going back to the first episode and andy's reaction when he sees the dead body and we learn that this is typical of Andy, that he cries like this over every dead body and that it's something that Truman sort of chides him for. Andy is somebody who is not comfortable with violence. He's obviously not someone who has a lot of experience with guns or with using them. He has to have one for his job, but he obviously doesn't practice with it. And in this episode, this discomfort is presented by Cooper as something that needs fixing. Yes. And I don't think that I see it that way. I see it as a good thing about Andy. It's interesting. Uh, I, later on, we see that Andy does gain some competence and yes. some self-confidence. Right. But again, but, it's not what solves the mystery, is it? No. And in fact, I think we do need to briefly delve into um Twi- uh, the return mm-hmm. spoilers for the return basically yes. because ultimately what um and andy has given this gift of a vision mm-hmm. let's say and it's not because of, he used violence no it's because of his compassion yes exactly his unique compassion and without getting too into details because this there aren't that many things you can spoil about the return this is getting a little spoilery but Mm -hmm. there comes a moment where violence has to be used in the return yes you think it might be andy right who is prepared now Mm -hmm. and yet it is someone as a woman yes who has had no training whatsoever yes he yes. uses the violence that has to be done. Yes. So it's all it's all very interesting, and mm-hmm. it's just I guess um, I guess the takeaway is yeah we, we have to we can't take this this view of masculinity and violence at face value. No. Um, no, yeah. and and I think we should see it as something that even when it's constructed as something that is necessary to protect Twin Peaks, it bolsters the institutions of power, which yeah. are the problem in the first place. Yeah, or if not the problem, they're not solving the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, because... Because you can't fight violence with violence. It's just more violence. Well, yeah, because all of the, the you know, Laura was killed under their noses. Mm-hmm. Um, ben is getting away with his plot... Yes. Under their noses. Mm-hmm. It all happens under their noses. Um, but the real the real love story here in this scene is that Cooper is enamored with the boys of the sheriff's department. Yeah. And their seductive image of Twin Peaks mm-hmm. as a kind of Eden where you can always keep the serpent away. Yes. Yes. So... I think those are the key stories here, but I did want to talk about the mill. The mill. And um, I want to say, I feel like I wasn't fair to Joan Chen in our first episode. I think her performance is actually better than I remember. I think my problem with this storyline is really Piper Laurie, (laughs) who's just so over the top. And um, she's so soap opera. And because so many of Josie's scenes are with Catherine, it's... 
just a lot to take. But I think Josie is somebody who is very deliberately holding back, um, which nobody else in the episode is really doing, with maybe the exception of Norma in this episode. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, earlier I said that Joan Chen is that she's kind of blank mm -hmm. or without affect. But here, especially in this episode, I can see that that's not really true. Yeah. But I think what is actually happening is that her expressions and responses are often ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we actually disagreed yeah. in the scene about her how, emotional reaction. And, and how she interacts with, um, with, Pete. with Pete specifically. I think she's clearly pretty fond of him. Yes. Um, so specifically yeah. the scene where he invites her, what, to go fishing? To go fishing. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think she is fond of him, but... What I felt is that her response had a slight hesitation and distance mm -hmm. that may indicate she was thinking through something and yes. thinking through like, actually, I'm not that interested in fishing, but I don't know, maybe she can use it to her advantage or sure. maybe no, it's I, just that she likes Pete. I think she's thinking all that through. I think you can be fond of someone while still making an effort to be nice to them, which is not always um, automatic, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. But I do think this is a character with a, a lot of backstory that we don't really know about yet. Mm -hmm. But I think once we know about it, we're supposed to see it as informing yeah. a lot of her actions. I think so. That, uh, yeah, that she's someone who has kind of been fighting for her life. Mm-hmm. Her whole life. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, and who yeah. has learned that she can't really trust anyone. Yes. So I think there is, so in this case, I would say that the ambiguity in her emotional responses to other characters mm -hmm. is actually, that's good acting from Joan Chen. Yeah, I agree. I based agree. on this character's backstory. Um, Piper Laurie's still annoying though. Yeah, it's almost like it's it's camp without the quotation marks. Uh -huh. So it's not camp anymore. Well, it's it's soap opera acting. So it's just a soap opera. Mhm. Mm um, but what do we learn about the mill? We learn more about what specific plot Ben and Catherine have, which is basically to get it burned down for the burned insurance down. money. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about what we had touched on in our first episode about this kind of tension between the service economy of Twin yes. Peaks, which Ben controls pretty much between the hotel and the department store and, you know, various pleasure-centered industries, um, and this industrial economy, which is controlled by Josie and sort of Catherine. Um, obviously, Catherine would like to control more of it. But I think it's an indication of the weak position of the industrial center of the town. Yes. That Ben can contemplate burning it to the ground. Mm -hmm. And he's not really worried about any effect that that'll have on the town other than he'll get the, they'll get the insurance money. Yeah. Um, he's not really worried about all of these mill workers who will be out of work and then what is anyone going to do with them? He isn't worried about the town's economy completely cratering because you've just destroyed its main industry. Mm -hmm. That's just not something he's thinking about at all, even in a selfish way where it might affect his business if there's no lumber mill anymore or right. no lumber being produced by Twin Peaks anymore. It's really showing that industry to be in a pretty weak position already, even before he's destroyed it. Yeah, I think that's right. And the... It, it's kind of easy to see uh, the the mill story as separate mm -hmm. and it's almost like the, the prosaic engine of the plot, but the way it hangs over everything, mm -hmm. you know, and, and a story that is so much about the self-image of the small town. Yes. The fact that the heart of its economy and its lifeblood is 
going to burn down and there's no twist. It does burn down Mm -hmm. and gets what he wants. Yeah. It's kind of apocalyptic how Mm -hmm. it's hanging over everything. Right. Um, You know, the the mill is always burning. Mm -hmm. It's the, the burning house of all the towns, the townspeople's destructive desires and their economy that runs on those desires. Mm -hmm. It's the imminent judgment of, colonial civilization yes that can only exist on the extinction of other people right but it's um it's this continual tension yeah yeah but it it kind of connects back to what we were talking about in the previous episode about whether twin peaks is a good place or not yeah and without the mill is there a reason for twin peaks to exist where it does originally no and without the mill, you see this in a lot of cities all over America that have been deindustrialized. There's no real purpose to them after that. There's no reason for people to be in that place. Well, but except for the, the uh, service economy exactly. and the tourist yeah. industry. So. If they can pull it off, which is an open question. Right. But we see because of the Great Northern mm-hmm. and the interest from the Scandinavians sure. all kinds. Yeah. That uh, there, this Twin Peaks, unlike a lot of these towns, mm-hmm. is lucky that it does seem like there is interest in it as uh, a, a site of tourism. Yes, and that's where what it really means is that the town becomes its own self-image. Yes, and instead of being a place where things happen, mm-hmm. it's a place where you go to see a place. It's a place that you go because you've bought into the idea that it's idyllic. Yeah. And unspoiled or scenic or something or mm-hmm. mysterious. Right. And all the woods that we used to tear down. Yeah. Um, you don't buy a thing anymore. You buy an experience. Yeah. The the experience of uh, a wilderness that you can pretend hasn't been tamed. Yes. Yes. And so in a way, Twin Peaks becomes its own image, mm-hmm. just like Laura became her own image. Mm-hmm. And for Laura, that meant death. Yeah. And it doesn't bode well for Twin Peaks. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. So um, I think that's mostly it. I did want to note that we have the connection between Josie and Hank. Yeah. And speaking of Hank, I really like Peggy Lipton's performance in this episode. Yeah. I I think it's clear she's terrified of Hank, but she doesn't really do any over-the-top emoting at all. It's very, very subtle. She's quite good. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I noticed this time around is that uh, I think the that Hank's lawyer delivered a veiled threat to Norma when totally. they were talking at the diner. Mm-hmm. And he kind of refers to it in this episode saying something like, I hope I wasn't too forward. Sure. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is terrified. Yeah. And had, she has reason to be. Mm-hmm. Hank's been in prison and she... I think has kind of been assuming he can't touch her from prison, but she's not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, Shelly reveals that Norma was planning on divorcing Hank Yeah. Um, to be with Ed. Um, although Ed is taking a sweet time divorcing Nadine, which is understandable, but it's unclear whether that's going to happen now um, because he's going to be out. And yeah, I think she's scared of him. Yes, and then, so that's kind of the, um, uh, you know, that that's kind of the thread. And then she sees Hank and he's all, uh, he's conciliatory mm-hmm. and he pretends like he is a changed man. Right. And she probably knows in her heart it's not true, but I think between that and the threat, it is kind of working on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course he kind of drops the act right at the end uh, of the parole hearing, by the way, mm-hmm. um, it's a it, his parole testimony is terrible, yeah. and in real life you wouldn't get parole like that. Yeah, Brian's a lawyer, so he knows about these things. I'm not well. I'm not that kind of lawyer, but um, basically, Hank says he doesn't know what happened. It wasn't his fault. Fate dealt him a lousy hand. Yeah, that's not what gets you parole in the United States. No, absolutely not. They just want to hear that. I'm very sorry. Mm -hmm. And he does get around to saying that. And maybe that's enough. Or, or, 
maybe it's Norma's uh, Norma's statement yeah. that puts it over the top. For right. Me. He's not just going to be a vagrant or somebody dependent on state services. He'll be a contributing citizen again, only dependent on his wife. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, we're going to see Hank kind of switching back and forth between pretending kind of badly that he is a changed man and showing that he is still threatening mm -hmm. and it's uh, completely terrifying. Mm -hmm. He is scary in a way that we haven't really seen on Twin Peaks so far. Leo is scary, yeah. but um, he is almost a, a cartoon. Mm -hmm. He's very one dimensional. Hank, yes. Hank is uh, reads as a, he reads very re as a realistic abuser mm -hmm. uh, uh, who manipulates yes. Norma in so many ways. Right, but I do think we're supposed to see um, Norma and Shelley in parallel situations, and and they even say this to each yeah. other that they you know each have two men and they don't know what to do with either of them because mm -hmm. um, they're in marriages with violent and abusive men that they're afraid to divorce mm -hmm. and they have uh men that they're in love with who aren't really helping them at all right. get out of this situation as yeah. much as they love them and that means they're kind of on their own apart from having each other i yeah i like this bit of norma and shelly friendship and bonding at the end of this episode i think it's nice at yeah. least they have somebody oh yeah and uh that's going to become a very big part of the return um mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. I think it's, you know, all, all of the women on the show, I think we can sort of compare and contrast with Lara. Um, but the fact that Norma and Shelley have each other is a big difference. Lara really didn't have anybody that she could mm -hmm. trust and confide in the way Shelley confides in Norma. Yes. Or vice versa. Yeah. Right. And it can be the difference between life and death. It really can be. I, and I think it is. Right. So we have Hank getting his parole. Mm -hmm. He calls Josie. Yes. We get some great Dutch angles. With really Josie, nice. Um, highlighting her role as uh, a kind of femme fatale or, <laughs> or vamp from, from a noir movie. Yeah, but I think she's more of a damsel in distress at this point. But, you know, well, the thing about noir is that it's always a little bit of both. Right. We we don't know a lot about Josie when we first watch this mm -hmm. and we see her in danger because we understand Hank is dangerous. But we don't we also understand that there's a reason he's contacting her, that they have a prior relationship. Yes. So that's cluing us in that there's more to Josie than meets the eye. Yes. And the Dutch angles and the noir trappings mm -hmm. are uh, whether we notice it or not, they're building that sense of Josie as someone who's more than just a helpless victim. Yes, and Dutch angles um, in noir, but like in thrillers of like the 30s through the 50s more broadly, Hitchcock used them a lot. Um, they're really often meant to convey some kind of moral instability. Mm -hmm. um, and so they don't necessarily convey that Josie is evil or bad, but just that she's not quite good either. She's maybe a little of both she's maybe not sure what side she's on she's not sure what she's going to do and we can't be sure either yeah well and again you know to compare all the female characters to laura mm -hmm. where we'll find out that josie is in some ways the most like laura yes in that she has suffered mm -hmm. she has done bad things mm -hmm. out of necessity yeah and she is in trouble yeah um, and not necessarily trustworthy for that reason, mm -hmm. but not, uh, not a villain at all. No, not at all. Not at all. So that's interesting. There's a lot of doubling in this episode. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the split diopter, there are characters doubled with other characters, characters that have double motivations. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, there's no algebra. Sometimes the 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 uh, the known in mm -hmm. the known quantity turns out to not to be the unknown. Yes, and you know the virtues are vices, and mm -hmm. the vices are virtues. Yeah, exactly. So, 
Great episode. I think so. I think so. I'm excited to talk about the next one. Yeah, we'll keep going. There's actually only a couple of episodes left. In I think the first three season, yes. Left in the first season. Mm-hmm. So uh, we might take a little bit of a break after that, but we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yep. Bye. See ya. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.